Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Break, the podcast bringing content to sports fans at a time when we are deprived of live action. Across the series, I'll be joined by Neil Foles and Jimmy White to debate some of the biggest talking points in snooker, as well as catching up with some of the game's biggest names. And a reminder that this is coming to you from the confines of self-isolation, so please do excuse the audio quality at times. Today's show is all about the most bizarre moments in snooker, and it's alongside Neil Foltz and Jimmy White, who usually are sat with me on a couch, but for obvious reasons, we find them in their own homes. Neil, hello, how are you? Very good, thank you, Andy. And Jimmy, uh, are you often in the kitchen, or is this just a one-off? Um, yeah, I do, I do a little bit of cooking, not too much. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's move on. Now, listen, we've got loads and loads to, to choose from. It's quite bizarre because when you look back at strange moments in snooker, there's quite a few, actually. And it's not just in a match or in a frame, but also in a championship. And the reason I say that, Neil, is because we're going to start with the 2020 Masters, which was, of course, between Stuart Bingham and Ali Carter, which Stuart ended up winning just about 10-8. But the actual championship itself was quite bizarre because Murphy beat Trump. We saw Perry beat Ding. We saw Carter beat Selby. We saw Maguire beat Neil Robertson. We saw Gilbert beat Allen. And Stuart Bingham, who of course went on to win it, beat Mark Williams. It was a strange championship from the mm. minute it started, wasn't it? But I think you could even go back further than that because if you look at how um, you qualify for it, there's a cutoff point, which is after the UK championship. Uh, Ali Carter, he was 17. He hadn't made it. Ronnie, of course, was in there. And um, I think we were working on the UK Championship and Ronnie was sort of saying to Jimmy and I, I might not play it, I might not play it. I wasn't sure what, what to believe on that score. And then Ronnie pulled out of it. Right at the end of the UK Championship, pulled out, which meant that Ali Carter, who, of course, if you remember, Ronnie and Ali had had a match at the Crucible where there's a bit of argy-bargy going on. Um, so I don't think that at the time they were absolutely best pals. They go back years, those two, so I think they're good now. Ronnie decided to pull out. So... Everyone moves up one in the list, uh, in the case of Ali Carter, got him in the tournament, uh, which it didn't seem likely. And, of course, you think, well, OK, well, Ronnie O'Sullivan pulling out of a tournament, which he's won so many times, gives someone else a chance, a younger player, for instance. And then you get Ali Carter, who shouldn't have been in the final, playing another guy who's not, not a youngster in, in Stuart Bingham. So, you know, even before the tournament started, it was kind of odd how we got to the 16 player who did play in it. Mm. And Jimmy, I think out of the two, whoever ended up losing, in this case, it was Ali Carter, I think would have been devastated because they would have probably felt it was their best ever chance to become Masters champion. And in the end, it was Stuart Bingham who did it, becoming the oldest ever Masters champion at 43. No, it was an amazing tournament, you know, from the start with Ronnie O'Sullivan not playing in it. 
won seven Masters. For me, arguably, his closest tournament to his house. You know, uh, it was like an hour's drive. You live in the same area. You know, it was so bizarre that he didn't play in it. And then each match, as you said, all the second favourites got beat and uh, went on to no one forecast that that final would be Ali Carter playing Stuart Bingham. And you've got to give credit, though, to Bingham. The last few frames, he did hold himself together very well and played some good stuff. You know, deserved winner in the end. There was a, a funny moment as well, Neil, in the championships where someone had placed some kind of noisy machine under a chair. Do you remember this? Yeah, I do. Yeah, some sort of a fart machine or something, wasn't it? Um, I'm not sure about all that. I, I didn't. I didn't rate it that highly. As, as um, I, I know that uh, there was a lot of laughs about it, but I mean, it, if, you, if it cost someone a, an important shot, it might not have been so good. And if you remember Stuart Bingham when he played in the UK Championship against John Higgins, he was put off by a member of the crowd. So, mercifully, there wasn't anything that put him off in that final, you know. And interestingly about that match, also at the end of it, Stuart Bingham was immediately asked, "Oh, well, you won two of." The big three now, you've been world champion, you've been Masters champion, just the UK for the Triple Crown, which didn't really seem at that moment to be that important a question because you just won the Masters. The UK had, had only just gone, so that wasn't really a big thing. What was a surprise is that he won it because his season overall had been really poor either side of that Masters win. He had hardly won a match, Stuart Bingham, for someone who's a leading player. So it was a big shock, big shock. The whole week, it was full of shocks from start to finish. Mm. And also, Jimmy, just before we move on, we should talk about how different it was at the Masters at Pali. We had um, people sitting in armchairs. We had um, a lot of uh, people that have paid a few quid to have some decent steak and chips while they're watching the snooker. It really did take snooker for the first time to the next level, didn't it? Yeah, it was. It was like a little bit, little bit like being at Wimbledon at the tennis. You know, you had uh, fantastic facilities. You could, you could uh, drink and have a nice meal and what and have a conversation with you know, your friends while watching the game, which you can't normally do when you're in an audience of a snooker match, you've got to be dead quiet. So that was behind a sort of uh, a soundproof glass. And uh, I think all the people there enjoyed that side of it. And, you know, and it is, it's our second biggest tournament. It's probably in the best venue. The Crucible's um, marvellous for playing, but actual facilities for hospitality, for sponsors is not the best in the game. So, you know, the Masters stepped up a level this year and it was good to see. Mm. Uh, we're talking about bizarre moments in snooker. And that's the sort of a whole championship we're looking back on. We're going to look back on one match in particular from 2019, the first round of the World Championships, which saw Ronnie O'Sullivan, of course, favourite for the title going into this one, up against, at the time, an amateur in James Cahill. And it was Ronnie that lost 10-8. As upsets go, Neil, this is probably one of the biggest not just mm. in the World Championships, but probably one of the biggest in snooker history, isn't it? It's a big a big shock yeah, at the time. Um, obviously, the, the amateur status is absolutely correct, and we made a lot of it. But James Cahill was kind of a professional, sort of masquerading as an amateur, and he'd been a professional. He dropped off the tour. You know, he'd had wins against Dings and Wee in the UK Championship, against uh, Mark Selby in the UK Championship. Uh, I think Selby at the time was, well, he was certainly world number one by a long way. Um, so he was he's a pretty good player, James Cahill, but he was an amateur. He, he wasn't part of the main tour. He was a top-up. Uh, he got in it because other people couldn't play in it. Um, but I think in that match, looking back on it, you know, Ronnie was not really at his best. I remember uh, working with you guys. With, Jimmy was there. You, you may have been there that night uh, yourself. And he, after the first session, the score was 5-4. It was apparent that Ronnie had played one or two, I don't know, not very, fairly loose shots, let's just say. 
And I don't think he was taking James lightly, but what he does say to this day, Ronnie, that, you know, he wasn't feeling at his best, certainly in that second session. But James Cahill deserved that win, you know, and uh, mm. it was a big shock. It was one for the newspapers. Ronnie O'Sullivan loses to amateur, um, which is factually correct, but I think we all knew that he was up against a good player, actually. And Jimmy, um, some of the quotes afterwards from Ronnie, he said his limbs felt heavy, he had no energy. But all that to one side, his first first round defeat since 2003 in the World Championships. It's just incredible, isn't it? Yeah, he was, you know, looking at it on hindsight now, he was on a hiding for nothing. He said he had a tuna sandwich um, the day before that gave him food poisoning. But uh, watching the match, as me and Neil watched every shot, he... Um, Bizarrely, he went for so many balls. It was a little bit like an exhibition. It was a little bit like some of the matches he had played this season when he says, I haven't got time to play safe. I'm just going to go out and, and attack the game. You know, he's a very attacking player anyway, O'Sullivan, but he knows to win tournaments, to beat uh, the top players, he has to rein it in a bit, has to play a bit of safety and has to refuse the odd pot. I think he went for so many shots against James Cahill that he shouldn't have done. And then all of a sudden... It's eight each, and for me, it looked like the alarm bells went on went on for O'Sullivan, and then he tried to win. And uh, in any sport, you can't not give it the respect it mm. deserves. And uh, he missed a pink. He had a pressure pink. He had to play with check side. Now, if he'd have been in his normal frame of mind, playing the right shots through the match, he would have potted that and gone the black. We missed that, and it cost him the match. Uh, I'm guessing as well, just quickly before we move on, both of you, Neil, I'll start with you. You both lost in the first round of the World Championships? Oh, yeah, it's, of course I did. I did on plenty of occasions, yeah. I mean, I um, it, I lost to Steve Davis, actually, uh, right at the start of my career. The year after I played Alex Higgins, I played um, Steve Davis and he was defending champion. He had a real close match that went all the way, I think, to 10-8, not 10-9. Um, it's tough because, you know, you've got so much hope and expectation. And what you want to do about the World Championships is you want to get out of that best of 19. It, it feels like a long match thinking about it now. But you know that you've got a three-session match to come. And I know Jimmy will obviously be able to explain it better than me with his record at the Crucible. But, you know, getting into that best of 25, Jim, I guess that kind of, you feel like you can really settle into it once that first round is over. Yeah, even though it's the best of 19, it's, um, it's still a bit of a banana skin, really. You know, you want to get into the three-session match. In uh, 19, 1981, in 1979, I won the English Amateur Championships. And uh, where the great Ronnie Gross, who sort of was me and Neil's only real coaches, really, or someone who yeah. taught, taught us the etiquette of the game, is that um, I thought in that day and age that you had to go and win the World Amateurs. It was a thing you wanted to win. And I could have had two years at the Crucible, but I, I waited. I went to Tasmania. I won the World Amateur Championships. And my first year at the Crucible, I played Steve Davis, and I was 6-2 down. I ended up... Um, I ended up losing 10-8 to him in 81 and he went on to win that world championship and dominate, you know. So maybe, at hindsight, maybe I should have gone to the Crucible instead of going to Tasmania. Mm. But that, that was the first round defeat that I really remember, yeah. Uh, let's move on now to uh, another bonkers moment in snooker. So the first one we were talking about was an entire championship. The next one was 18 frames and it was 10-8, of course, to James Cale. The next one, Neil, lasted just five frames and the match wasn't even over. It's the 2006 UK, the quarterfinals, between Ronnie and Stephen Hendry. And at 4-1 down, Ronnie decided to shake hands with his opponent and call it a day. Very strange moment. 
Very strange moment. Um, looking back now, that you wouldn't have probably ever thought that Ronnie would go on to achieve what he's achieved because it wasn't only that match. There were a few matches at that time when he would just put his cue through the ball. He wasn't really didn't want to be there particularly. It was a best of 17, but he was 4-1 down. He was playing badly against Stephen Hendry, you know, the great player that he is. It was pre-days of Stephen Peters, Dr. Peters, who, of course, Ronnie has done so well. He's got his mind right and he's got him playing snooker well. And It was before all that. And at the time, Ronnie, if he couldn't have it his own way, he had a spell of a year or two where he would literally throw the towel in. In this case, he really did do that. Other times he would kind of just... I remember another match a bit like that where he played Stuart Bingham in the UK Championship and he, did, he wasn't really up for that game either and uh, he lost it. But that was an incredible moment. And what was incredible about it was the just the, the, the look on the, the referee, Jan Verhaas and Stephen Hendry's face. No one really knew what to do. The crowd didn't know what was going on. But Jimmy, this is another reason why we love Ronnie. You know, he, he concedes after five frames. He bites his tip off. He puts his foot up on the table to do his shoelaces up. I mean... This is just one of a hundred reasons why we just adore watching him, isn't it? Because we don't know what he's going to do. I'm not too sure about the shoelace bit, you know, putting <laughs> dust on the table, but that was totally bizarre, you know, and I actually got concerned for O'Sullivan, you know, because where does he go from there, from that point in time, you know, the way, and Stephen Henry, like, you know, you, the look on his face and Yamba has his face, they're thinking like, what, what do we do now? You know, this is not in the script. But, <laughs> Ronnie O'Sullivan, I was a bit concerned for him that day because um, I think he he has talked about it, that he went on like a mad blowout for a few days. He just needed to let the steam off. And as Neil said, it, this is before Steve Peters was on speed dial because um, when you're that type of, you know, to do something like that, obviously he, he had problems because, uh, you know, that was one of the most bizarre situations I've ever seen in a game of snooker, for sure. Mm. Um, when he looks back on it now, Neil, how do you think he'll view that? Well, listen, it's a dark moment. I don't think um, anyone likes someone quitting in the middle of something. Um, it just doesn't really add anything to the game. You know, people come there to watch what was good. It was a really heavily anticipated quarterfinal. People want to watch the snooker. They don't want to watch someone shake hands. There's no evening session. I, mean, I was there. and I remember he was out that building in a flash, Ronnie. He went through the, the back of the building and he was gone from the Barbican into the night, if you like, um, Never, never to be seen again that week. But, you know, I think it all, you've got to say that the problem with it is you almost got to tag on, on your head of a bit of a quitter when you do that. Because you think, yeah. okay, the next time someone gets ahead of him, this guy could crack again. So what it has done, it's proved how he's turned it around in such a big way. He's won more of the, the majors than, than any other player now. It, you know, more Masters, more UK Championships. So he's turned it all around. It's all him. But Steve Peters has helped him. But... You know, it's almost a chapter in his life that maybe he needed to have and, and get out of his way, you know. There is a so, rumour, um, you'd have to ask Ronnie O'Sullivan, but he apparently was in a restaurant in York that night and there was a, there was quite a lot of people who had been to that match and apparently paid all, he paid for all their dinners. So, uh, you know, but that is Ronnie O'Sullivan. He does do unusual things. So, you know, mm. we know him well. You know, he is a top fella and he... He, he's, he's like a, he is a bit of a sweetheart, but also he can also be as tough as now. So, uh, you know, that was something that he had to sort out. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm glad that that's in, in the past. But he will look back at that and he will be disappointed, that's for sure. And let's move on now to um, a moment that Ken Doherty will, of course, 
never ever forget, never ever live down. That's him in the the year two thousand at Wembley Conference Centre, missing a black off the spot for a maximum one four seven nil. It's a shot that will haunt him for the rest of his life, won't it? Yeah, I think the the thing about that match, I I had to check up the score in that match at the time. First to ten, he was trailing nine five. So he's not really thinking about winning the match. He might just be thinking about well. Might be able to nick the sports guy here, you know, whether the match is going to go. I think when you're that far behind, you you know you could still win the last five, but if a chance like that comes up to make a 147, you know, Jimmy might have some thoughts on that himself. You might think, okay, now's the time, okay, keep this break going. And he got all the way down to the black. And it was not so much that, but the, just that Matthew Stevens was, he couldn't see the shot because Ken was, was in the way from Matthew's uh, position. So, so Matthew was craning his neck, looking over his shoulder at the shot. Ken misses it, and uh, no one, again, it was kind of strange, no one quite knew what to do. Ken had to pretend it didn't hurt when it clearly did. He goes in, down in, into an elite group, if you like, of players that have got 140 and missed the final black. Tep Chari, who has done it a couple of times. Mark Selby's done it. Players have done it. Tep Chari, it cost him money, I think 35000 once. He missed another one in a, a, the, the qualifiers of the World Championship, which cost him money. He did make one in the end. But to get all that way and miss the final black, that is undoubtedly the, the most memorable occasion it ever happened. Mm. Jimmy, of course, you famously made a 147 at the World Championships. Does the, I don't know if you can remember, but does the pressure increase from the yellow to the green to the brown and so on? Is it just yeah. mad yeah, on the black? It, you know, it's it's a massive... Any, any 147, even in exhibitions, you're very excited to do it, even in practice. You know, it's uh, people who say they're not, they all get a good buzz clearing up because it's the perfect, you know, it's the ultimate frame. But... I, I missed uh, a black very similar against Stephen Hendry to win the world championship, probably more costly than, than this sports car. But this is 100% what happened. I was watching Ken Doherty and I was around Ronnie Wood's house and we was actually playing on the table and his telly was in the corner, like a few steps up from the, the table is down a few steps and the telly was in the corner. And I said, he's queuing across this and if you watch it, they had the camera in the pocket looking at the shot. And he's actually, he got down to the shot and he was queuing across it. And uh, that's why he missed the black. It was just, obviously, he didn't line it up right, a bit of pressure. And he twitched, very similar to the black I missed, and twitched against Stephen Hendry. And, you know, it's funny that Jimmy says that, you know, he looked like he was queuing across it. I mentioned this to Ken when we were at Ali Pali for the Masters earlier this year and he set up the black. Yeah. And he said the biggest problem that he thinks the reason he missed it is because he punched the black in rather than just smoothly pot it. But I suppose even if you had smoothly tried to pot the ball and missed it, you probably would look back and go, I should have punched it. It's just the fact that he missed yeah. it is now... If you if you look at the shot, if you replay the shot, um, with my black that you miss, that missed, you can't really see it. You know, I threw my cue out of it. But with, with uh, Ken Doherty, the camera is actually in the pocket. And you could see him queuing. He was completely queuing across it. He just didn't get the alignment right, uh, you know, because, you know, th- that's, uh, that's the reason why I think he missed that. And uh, it was a real great prize at the time. It was a, a beautiful uh, sports car. There's yeah. a couple of things I'd say about that, Andy and Jimmy. Um, Jimmy might agree with this or may not, but if you get to the final black, you're worried if you roll it in that you're going to get a kick that you won't get if you play it at pace. For some reason, it should never come into your mind but you think, I'd like to just drop this in because I won't miss it that way. If I got a kick, I'd never forgive myself for not hitting it harder. And that would be maybe something was in his mind, would you say, Jim? Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, I don't, I, I wouldn't think kicks at that time was such a, 
we had the knowledge that we do now with all this new chalk and all that. But uh, if you watch it, he definitely just queued across it. And you, you listen, you're you're a player, Neil. Andy pretends to be a player. You'd rather <laughs> stun one in than roll one yeah. in at any stage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to another bizarre moment. Of course, um, it's uh, I can't remember too many times where um, we've had a streaker on uh, or around a snooker table, but it happened in 1997, the final of the Masters between Ronnie O'Sullivan and Steve Davis. But uh, it's probably most famous for the streaker and John Street's reaction, or Ronnie's reaction to John Street, where he puts his hand on his forehead and then maybe tries to cover his eyes. A very funny moment. It was, you know, it was, first of all, it was a great game, those two, because Steve was coming back, wasn't he? Like, like a, a tournament he'd never had a lot of success at, you know, he'd never really, uh, in his pomp, particularly like he liked playing at the Masters. Everyone thought Ronnie was going to beat him. Then the streaker comes out, kind of changes the way the game uh, was after that. Um, John Street, who was much missed, you know, passed away a few years ago. Very, a very lovely guy from the West Country, really popular. I think Jimmy would agree with that. It's a sort of bloke you couldn't dislike. If you called a, a miss that you didn't agree with, he, he would never really, he couldn't fall out with him. He was such a lovely guy. And he played his own part in that. The bit that stands out for me with that streaker, I had a streaker once in a crucible. Um, a woman come on. I can't remember what year it was. But uh, the, the streaker with Ronnie O'Sullivan, the bit that I, that I love about it, Ronnie O'Sullivan... Uh, puts his hand on John Street's <laughs> brow and on the expression on Ronnie O'Sullivan's face is like, this happens every day. You know? <laughs> like, what's, the, what's the big thing? And then he went, he went on to play a shot as though nothing happened, you know, yeah. and that, that is what we all love and, about O'Sullivan. And it's funny, Neil, as well, you look at the turning points in matches. So Ronnie was 21 in that final, Davis was 39. Ronnie went into a 2-0 lead with two tons. And he looked unstoppable. Then the streaker came out and then it sort of slowed him down a bit. And then he rattled off at 4-4. He rattled off four frames in 49 minutes and Davis still managed to win 10-8. It was an unbelievable final. I think without the streaker, it would have been a, uh, something of a, a, a crazy match, wouldn't it? Never mind all of that that went on. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is sort of thought of as the, the match with the streaker. I can't remember the lady's name, actually, uh, who did that. But um but it was just something that adds to it. But the match itself was brilliant. I guess also you had, you know, the business, as Jimmy says about, you know, Ronnie putting his hand on, on the brow of, of John Street. And, uh, you know, Steve, I'm amazed that he was only 39 thinking now. I thought he was older than that. But, you know, a young man still, but someone that we thought of as beyond his, his best, really, which is odd now when you think that players in their 40s are winning the world mm. title. That's a very good point. Uh, and on now, finally, to... Uh one of the most incredible moments in snooker history. And I am talking about the 1986 final of the World Championships, which saw Joe Johnson and his shoes beat Steve Davis, the greatest player on planet Earth. And Jimmy, it was just from beginning to end, you just got the feeling that we were in for one of the biggest shocks ever in snooker. Well, snooker was absolutely at its height. You know, the last year you'd had 18 and a half million viewers watch Dennis Taylor beat the unbeatable Steve Davis, 18-17 on the black, you know. So snooker was absolutely flying and Joe Johnson through that tournament he just played phenomenal stuff I think he won his first match against Dennis Taylor and he'd never beaten Dennis Taylor before uh, Neil would probably know the proper stats for that but um, I think that's right he beat Dennis Taylor he'd never beaten Dennis Taylor before and uh, he went right through that tournament and in the final he played fantastic stuff and Steve Davis rightly said after he said I was beaten fair and square Joe played far better than me. And it was true. He just played 
from absolutely out of the blue from nowhere, played brilliant snooker for the whole 17 days, a very worthy winner of the World Championships. And I'll tell you what is bizarre as well now, I've, I've spoken to Joe many a times about this because, of course, he works with us on Eurosport, and he tells a story about going into the World Championship. He was outside the top 16, and his agent at the time sort of double-checked the ranking points, contacted World Snooker, said, I think you've got that wrong. They double-checked it, and they agreed that actually he is part of the top 16, so he didn't need to qualify. That's right. I know, I've, heard, I've heard that story. I, I mean, I didn't know. I guess in those days that maybe the ranking um, list was a little bit worked out a little differently, you know, and I don't think you could make that kind of mistake nowadays. The other thing about it is it's a, it's a myth that he'd never won a match on TV before because people say, oh, he'd never won a match on TV because he had a bad reputation for that. You know, he played brilliantly in the qualifiers. The TV lights are always very different. He'd won the odd match here or there, but that was all. But he had no no right to win, I was going to say, not going into the title, the championship that year. But just the way he played the other match, Jim, that you mentioned, he, he played um, Terry Griffiths, as well, and he was way behind in that match. I think it was 12-8, or certainly that or 12-9. He'd never beaten the Griff before, and he played like a man possessed to win that. And I think in the final, I don't know, I just felt that the pressure was never really on him. And even when it got to the point on the second day of that final, he was in Yorkshire, his home, his home county, it never really come back on him, and he was a thoroughly deserved winner. I just wonder maybe if what happened the year before, losing to Dennis, which was a huge shock, again, was somewhere in the back of Steve's mind. Uh, Jimmy, it's interesting that Neil says he had no pressure going into that final. He probably had no pressure going into the tournament. 150 to 1 outsider he was. He'd never won a match at the Crucible before that year. And also, in his seven years as a pro, he'd never won a tournament. So, there was absolutely nothing expected of him. No, but, you know, as we all knew, you know, playing in pro-ams and playing Joe, I played him in uh, a few tournaments. I played him in... uh, a tournament in Potters once as well. You know, he, he was a fantastic player. And the, and the following year, he got to the final and got beat by Steve Davis. You know, he just played phenomenal stuff, scored very heavily and uh, just showed us what a great player he was. i tell you an interesting thing, Andy, about that. You know, everyone talks about the Crucible curse. Now, Joe, going into that year after in 87, he had hardly won a match. He had a terrible season. i tell you that now, really poor and got to the final, as, as Jimmy pointed out. So that was a shock again. And the other guy who had a really bad year as champion, Ken Doherty, I mean, he was he lost to all sorts of players, even me that year when he was champion in the UK <laughs> Championship, and I was way below my best. But he got to the final. So the two guys who went into it with the least pressure as champion, I think, ever, mm. both reached the final. Right, before we wrap things up, Jimmy, have we missed out any other moments in snooker where you look back and think that was a bit weird? No, I think we've covered most of this stuff, Andy. What about this one then, Jim? What about this one? Not in, not in the Triple Crown, guys. What about the, the time in Barnes when Ronnie was just clearing up in one of the matches in the year that he won the English? Again, it's not, it was one of the home nations and not a Triple Crown event. And the, the old lady came yeah. out and he, Ronnie let her play the last couple of pots or something. What, what yeah, was right. that about? That Who was, was she? Yeah, How did come from? Where is she now? How, no, that, I think... I, I think she's trying to qualify for the Worlds this year. <laughs> yeah, no, that that was, you know, that that is once again, you see Ronnie O'Sullivan handed his cue, you know. Like, who had the, you know, the Ronnie O'Sullivan's cue? Like, John Paris must have been having kittens watching that. <laughs> Strange thing about that, just before we go, I know that three or four of the top players somehow thought that was all staged, you know, but it wasn't. It was just bizarre how it happened, but it wasn't staged. How could that be staged? Who thought that? Well, I know that one or two top players said that Ronnie... Oh, the he way won't, he won't you, tell you, Andy. I won't, say, you, I won't uh, say, but... Um, you'd, you'd have to get the pliers out. 
<laughs> it was a strange moment for sure, right? It was very bizarre. Listen, it's been a bizarre show, but I've enjoyed every minute. Um, Neil, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for your yeah. time and the same you to you, too, Thanks again to everyone that's listened. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of The Break. Remember, please subscribe, rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. We'd really appreciate it. From myself, from Neil and Jimmy, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.